0: Love talk radio it's already done. It's, it's the pressure points unpacked podcast with host tyra little we're live tuesdays at 6 p.m eastern time this show deals with personal and community issues by getting to the root cause and causes on an open and raw level we're unpacking emotional spiritual mental, and physical topics that influence and often control us. Get ready to unload, examine, and process. Let's get unpacked on Never Handed So Good Sports Media Network, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Well, hello, and welcome to Pressure Points Unpacked Podcast. Well, we're unpacking Tuesdays, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and physically. And so, as I've told you, for this month, because we're coming up to an election, we are not you doing our usual format. So today I have with me, because we have a special election coming up for the school board for Richland County District 1. So today I have with me candidate Robert Lomanac. Hi, Robert. How are you?
1: Hey, Tyra, how are you doing?
0: I am great. How about yourself?
1: I am doing okay.
0: Well, I definitely wanted to welcome you to the show. I thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule because I know during this time you guys are extremely busy running around from different places, making sure that everyone gets to know who you are. And so I thank you for taking the time to speak to the listeners for Pressure Points Unpacked podcast.
1: Oh, well, I'm excited to be here, so thank you for letting me.
0: Yes, yes, yes. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Robert.
1: Well, I'm originally from South Carolina, but I I moved away for college and law school and then moved back to Columbia in 2000, so I've been here about 21 years. And when I moved back here, I was a lawyer representing men on death row. And so most of what I was doing was telling the stories of my client's childhoods, and so I learned a lot about childhood poverty and childhood trauma and also just missed opportunities, and I interviewed, you know, dozens of my client's uh, school teachers, and eventually I was drawn to become a public school teacher, and so after about a decade of of representing men on death row, I became a public school teacher in Richland One, and uh, I started teaching, and I, I, I taught for seven years, but one of the things that struck me immediately when I started teaching was just the gap between what our students and families needed and what they were actually getting. And so I started a nonprofit uh, that would provide intensive services to students and families living in poverty. And after seven years of teaching, I stopped teaching to run that nonprofit full-time. And that's what I'm doing today. And I've got two sons, one graduated from Dreer High School, and one is a junior at Greer right now.
0: Okay. Okay. So now what is the name of your nonprofit organization?
1: It's called Richland County Public Education Partners, so it's a mouthful. Okay.
0: Okay. That's that's good. Good stuff. Um, Good stuff. Well, I got a couple of questions for you, and so um, one of the things I want to ask you is, how do you feel about charter schools?
1: Well, you know, they're all different types of charter schools. And my organization and and me personally are – you know, public charter schools are very different than private charter schools. And in South Carolina, our charter schools are public charter schools, so anyone can go to them. Um, But I will tell you that overall, I really want to focus on strengthening our community public schools because uh, at the end of the day, that's where most of our children are going to go. I mean, over 90% of our students are going to go – to the school that, that is in their community, and so I want to make sure we're focused on that. Now, having said that, some of our school districts do have a lot of public school choice, so they might have a public magnet school or a public charter school right. that anyone in the district can go to, and, you know, I think that it is nice to have some uh, choices for families if there are some needs that their schools aren't able to address. I think that's okay. Where I get concerned is when we start diverting public money to support private schools, and I think that's that's a different issue.
0: Right. What's funny is that was going to be my next question for you <laughs> about how <laughs> you feel about the open enrollment. So, you know, I mean, you, you've already nailed that. Um, so, Robert, what's, you know, what's your take on addressing the amount of kids being expelled from school in retention?
1: Well, I, I mean, it's one of the things that frustrates me most, and I'll, I'll step back for a minute. When, when I left teaching, um, one of the reasons I left teaching to take on the, the responsibilities of my nonprofit full-time is because I recognized that uh, too much was being expected of teachers. And Mm -hmm. students were bringing a lot of of outside-of-school factors inside the classroom, and there weren't enough adults in the building to address them. And so that burden was falling on teachers. And what would happen is uh, a student would be struggling in the classroom. The teacher can't address that and teach at the same time, and so they call for someone. Well, it may take 30 minutes for someone to get there because the assistant principals and the principal are all overwhelmed with meetings and the things that they have to do. And in the meantime, now that student's behavior has escalated. And then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. they're getting suspended. And what I've always said is there's no magic suspension. A student doesn't come back better after you've sent them yes. home for three or four days or a week. And so what my program did is we had a social worker and myself, and we worked with mm-hmm. one grade level of students. And we promised those teachers, the minute you're struggling with a student, you call us, and we'll be there in 60 seconds or less. And in that way, we pro- we supported Every student in the classroom and the teacher because it meant that student who was struggling got immediate support before it escalated, the rest of the students weren't disrupted, and that teacher could continue teaching, and it gave us a chance to build a supportive relationship with that student. That's how you avoid suspensions and expulsions because we are not going to suspend and expel our way out of these issues. Mm
0: -hmm. That's that's, um, that's very good. I mean, Everything that you just said, I mean, I wholeheartedly agree with it um, because the teachers do have a lot of responsibility. They're not able just to go in there and just to teach, um, you know, their mom. They are, you know, the lunchroom person because, you you know, kids who may not get the opportunity to eat breakfast in the morning or food may not be there or for homelessness, you know, um, you, I know a lot of different teachers who they have food or they have things in the classroom, you know, and then again, the teacher is the social worker as well. Um, so everything that you said, you know, I'm, I'm really happy to, that your nonprofit is actually trying to bridge that gap. That's really good, really good. Um,
1: well, and what you just said is so insightful. I mean, you're right, that the teachers are expected to be all of those things and it's just overwhelming the teachers and i think that's one of the reasons we're losing some teachers um but i also i don't want to not mention this you know talk about suspensions and expulsions and look at the data uh we're suspending students of color at a disproportionate rate and that has got to be addressed um and we've got to acknowledge that and figure out what the reasons are and address it preferably we just need to suspend and expel fewer students i mean it just those are not fixes to the problem anyway
0: right well you know and and this has been ongoing this isn't a new um problem it has always been that that same um dynamics of what you just said of how you have more of african-american children that are being expelled um and, and i really wonder if they even take the time sometimes to dig into those children's background to see what's going on. Because I, I truly, and this is just my thought and my belief, I don't think that children get up in the morning wanting to be bad and disruptive. Um, they, they say so many different things behind the doors um, that people don't know or they don't take the time to be concerned. They just label them as being a bad child. Or if not that, you know, they're labeling these children with learning disabilities instead of getting to – taking the time to get to the root of the issue.
1: Well, I mean, (laughs) I tell you, I need need you running for school board because everything you said is just literally spot on. I mean, so to back up what you said about kids not wanting to be bad – I tell people all the time, no student wants to come to school every day and be bad at school for seven hours. Just like if you have a kid who's not a very good basketball player, you're not going to sit them mm-hmm. in the gym in front of 30 of their friends and say, we're going to watch you shoot for seven hours, and you're probably not going to make a single shot. Nobody wants to do that, and students don't either. Okay. And, so we, and, and, and when students are struggling, you also pointed this out. We need to say what is happening to you, not what's wrong with you, but what's going on mm-hmm. because when we can figure out what's going on, then we can address those root causes and that's when you start seeing some improvement. Right, right.
0: I mean it's just it's unfortunate that um adults want children to come to school and be adults. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you really right.
0: want them to come to school and be adults and act like they don't have any problems. When adults have problems, you expect them to come to school and if, say, for instance, another child does something to them or you you want them to be able to function like they don't have any issues in life, and adults can't even do that.
1: Well, that's exactly right. So, that's right.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I think the expectation sometimes – it's just too much. And I think that if we can begin to roll back the layers, and even for the teachers while they're in school learning how to be teachers, they're getting this training, people need to start to prepare these teachers that, hey, you may walk into some environment to where you're more than just a teacher. And so they can be better prepared. And so when these things begin to hit them and they got this child that is just being so disruptive, They look at them and say, no, there's something else going on instead of trying to label them so quickly.
1: Well, and that you're you're so right, and that's where that team approach comes in because, you know, teachers don't have time, like my social worker did, to go to the home and meet with the family and see what obstacles they were trying to confront and see how we could then help. Um, But it really helps for teachers to know what's going on so that they can – gauge how they interact with the kid based on those circumstances. And I'll tell you, you know, when teachers feel like they're part of a team and that team is taking some of that burden off their shoulders, uh, they work so hard. And they really feel like they're being set up for success. And those make for happier teachers. And that's how we keep teachers is we make sure we're providing that level of support.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, That to me, that's the only way because if you prepare them with someone who has been in the field for a while, um, then they have someone else that they may could go to and talk to about these issues. But I do think, you know, and I, you know, I don't know how they're actually preparing teachers, um, you know, as far as, well, hey, you get in the classroom and this is what you may experience. I I don't know that process. Um, And so I won't dare try to. Attack it, but um, I do know that just in life in general, if we better prepare people, then they'll have an idea of what they're getting ready to walk into. So
1: well, I think uh, yeah, I think that's right. And, <laughs> I think that's right. And you know, one of the frustrations I'll, I'll hear from teachers sometimes, and and I had this too, is that we would we would learn about issues like trauma and how it can affect kids, and and how we can better deal with it in the classroom, but then what teachers would say, okay, well, I know this information now, but sometimes I'm going to need the social worker or a mental health counselor to step in because that's, you know, y'all are telling <laughs> us that those are, those are resources that we need too, so where are those resources? So what drives teachers crazy is to be provided all this information, but then not the support at the school to address the, the, yeah. the best way to, to, to support these students. And so, you know, we've got twice as many police officers as social workers in our district we only have 14 mental health counselors for 23,000 students. That's just the wrong proportion, in my opinion, and that's not providing support to the teachers and the students.
0: It, absolutely, it is not. A, we're, we're going to circle back to that. Um, we're definitely going to circle back to that before, before we end this, this, this session today. Um, so I want to ask you also, how do you plan on assisting the district with bridging the gap of learning loss from COVID-19? This is
1: huge. Yeah, and it, you know, it's going to take time. I mean, you know, one of the things that teachers get frustrated by is that, you know, everybody says, well, we've got this learning loss, and then students come back. And right now, you know, I've talked to some second-grade teachers who are struggling because kids are, you know, many of their kids might be at a kindergarten reading level – and yet the teachers are required to use second grade materials so one of the things we've got to do is acknowledge where we are and 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 be realistic about the time it's going to take to catch up but again not ignore all these outside of school factors because those have been here long before the pandemic and our struggling mm-hmm. uh, you know, our struggles with keeping kids at grade level and reading we're here before the pandemic. I mean, before the pandemic, right. uh, the majority of our elementary schools, our third graders were not at grade, grade level at the end of third grade. And those kids are six times more likely to drop out of high school. Most of them will never catch up to their peers academically. So even before the pandemic, we were struggling. Now we're struggling even more. And I think one of the things we've got to do is acknowledge how tough it's going to be, but really provide the extra reading interventionists, the extra social workers, uh, after-school programs and summer programs to help the teachers, uh, you know, start to accelerate the learning to get back to where uh, we normally are.
0: Right. Right. No, that's definitely. There's definitely work to be done, and um, what you just said was key, acknowledging it, um, and definitely going back and understanding we did have these issues before COVID-19, and now you have, you know, those issues. And now you have this whole gap that has created even a bigger learning deficit. So definitely.
1: That's right. And Um, and it created that deficit in an inequitable way, right? So now we're seeing that opportunity gap widen in some areas and we're going to have to, you know, work triple time and overtime uh, to address it. But we can't just tell teachers, hey, uh, teach harder in the classroom, that's not going to just fix it if we're going to ignore where the students actually are, and we can't be unrealistic about our expectations and the time it's going to take.
0: Right, right. So, you know, I've I've, I've heard, you know, your passion, um, that you were, you know, a, a teacher before you taught in the district, so you see a lot of issues, which is always good when you have actually spent time in the district, so you are aware of a lot of other things. But let, let me ask you this. Um, do you feel like the current attendance line provide a level of diversity?
1: Oh, my goodness. I mean, you've opened up a, <laughs> a Pandora's box of issues. Oh, yeah. I mean, that is so difficult to figure out because, you, you know, you – We've got some of we've got schools that communities are very invested in, and I never want to discount that that connection to a school that's been in a community for years. Um, and so changing who attends that school or where kids in that community go can be very difficult. Um, I think but you know what we see is that some schools uh, have more students who are not living in poverty attend them. and so Those schools are going Mm -hmm. to, on paper, uh, look more successful. But if you dig in a little bit, the students who are living in poverty that are going to that schools are also still struggling. And so, you know, I really want to see us focus on that issue and see if we can really uh, provide some of the same programs, the same awesome opportunities at all of the schools. And at some point, I mean, you know, they have to address redistricting every so often. Um, but more than anything, rather than change where people go, I'd like to change what we're providing to the schools and talk to the schools and say what do you need, not just how many students are at your school, and we'll and we'll base the budget on that. But let's base the budget on needs. I mean, I think that's how you address equity issues.
0: And, and I agree, but I will tell you this, um, Robert, I'm actually a product of Richmond District 1. In in 1986, they did a major rezoning, And when they did it, I feel like this is me. I feel like it was intentional. I feel like what they did was intentional. They created some issues. They created some major socioeconomic issues. And I feel mm-hmm. like it was done on purpose um, because – just how they even went about grouping the schools. And then after they did this um, in 86, after they did this rezoning, later on, I remember um, after I left South Carolina um, for the military and everything, and when I came back to visit and I'm looking, a lot of the other feeder schools were closed because they merged a lot of them. And when I tell you that was devastating when they did that, they created so many issues.
1: Um and and, and and again
0: I just feel like it was done on purpose. Um because go ahead, what were you going to
1: say? I was just gonna, I I totally hear you and I and I I don't disagree with anything you you just said. I mean, I I think when people start changing where people go to school and which schools are going to stay open, you have to really question uh every single decision and why those decisions are being made. And historically, uh those decisions were made on very problematic grounds. And um and it sounds like that's exactly what you're talking about.
0: Oh, it it is and, and, and it's unfortunate because, you know, in eighty six I was able as a child, I was able to see like what in the world is going on? Why are they rezoning? I mean, you don't begin to merge together when they, when they rezoned, they, they did a major shift because W.J. Keenan and Florida, all of those schools, the the, the lines, the district lines there were, were totally different. So you had a more of a mixed, a, a little mixed population that was actually attending W.J. Keenan High School. Um, but when they did this whole rezoning, what they did was they pulled students that was going to C.A. Johnson. And Eau Claire, and put them all they can
1: well and so absolutely
0: now you yep. have not only do you now have um you know you you got the the socioeconomic issues going on, and it trickled down to our theater schools they ended up closing Burton elementary school, they combined it at Virginia pack and created uh Burton. in sports and everything else all of these years, and you just boom all of a sudden slam them all together, they knew what they were doing and I yeah think I mean that, the fact that as a child, I could see that, but there was nobody else speaking to them no, one yeah, else I, was, mean, know, I mean that's a toxic mixture it, it yeah and, and it really was, and it was really bad for us because high school was i mean it was like it was spiked every day. For a full – it felt like for – it felt like for an eternity, but it was probably at the most – I know the first two weeks of school, it was, it was awful. It was awful, and it took a while because now you're messing with the learning environment um, on the major scale. You
1: well, know? and just the um, fact that, you know, almost – what is this? 30-something years later, you're talking about it recovered. as if it happened to you yesterday, right? yes. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, it was problematic. That that's <laughs> that's 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 such a reminder of how our decisions really affect kids in ways that they will remember forever. And you know, this this I you know, we've kind of resegregated our schools, and I'll tell you, this you know, this issue of kind of grading our schools based on test scores, I think at the end of the day more, does more damage than good. I mean, I do talk about test scores sometimes. But more than anything, I talk about achievement and talk about what the teachers are seeing. But, you know, when we've got real estate software programs that are telling people whether a school is failing or not before they decide whether they're going to move into a neighborhood, that is really damaging on a grand scale, and people are really starting to look at that um, because it's not a fair way to um, to assess our schools. But more importantly, um, you know, it's up to the adults. These aren't failing schools. The the adults and the kids in those schools are working as hard as they possibly can. And if they're struggling, then it means they need more assistance, not just a label of a failing school or not just to close it down like what you're talking about so that the kids could get rezoned for another school.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and it's really sad, but I will say that what they did in 1986 has caused a major effect, and we still haven't recovered. But I'm going to move on because we do have some other, do have some other questions for you. Um, and so let me ask you this. What do you think are some responsibilities of the school board?
1: Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, we have got to be transparent about literally every single decision we're making. Um, and that means doing it out in the open, um, if you know if we don't want to tell people what we're doing or explain it to folks, then we shouldn't be doing it. And I think forcing forcing us to to do things out in the open and explain them out in the open will force us to make more thoughtful decisions uh, because we, we know that we'll have – even when it's sometimes difficult. Uh, but I think that forces thoughtful decisions, and it prevents, I think, some really bad decisions from being made when you know you're going to have to explain it to the public. So I think erring on the side of being transparent – Um, is important, but also admitting where we're failing. I think that is a huge responsibility Mm -hmm. of school board members because if you don't admit where we're failing, you lose the trust of the teachers and the parents who know better, and they get worried that you're not going to address it. So I think we've got to absolutely celebrate our successes, and there are absolutely successes in Richland One, but we've also got to admit where we're failing so that we can address them and, and build that credibility with the public
0: right right um Robert what the, what specific actions will you take to increase the role of parents in decision making and promote parental involvement in schools
1: well i think you know we have got to give have more engagement between our individual schools and their families because those are the the closest contact points and so when we see school leaders Um, who are really doing a good job of communicating with families, and there are absolutely some principals and assistant principals who do a remarkable job with that, those principals and school principals have their fingers on the pulse, and they know what their families want. They hear from them all the time. And so rather than try to create You know, a whole other layer of bureaucracy that's trying to reach into communities. I think we've really got to rely on some of our awesome school leaders who are talking to families every single day. And then, you know, obviously school board members have to get out in the community and have to talk and have to answer questions and listen to folks. But we have to do a better job of meeting with our school leaders who know so much about the community needs and what families are saying. Um, And so I'd like to see, Mm -hmm. you know, more of that, but that takes making sure that we're providing our school leaders with enough time and support to do that. Right, right, right.
0: So, Robert, do you believe that art and music are part of of, of a quality education? And if so, what do you plan to do to make sure these programs remain?
1: Well, we, I mean, we've got to have art in our schools. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. first of all, it's important for brain development. It, it's, it's, an, it's an important right. outlet for students. But also, that is going to be what some students do uh, as a profession, too. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. an avenue for some students to pursue a dream. And I literally, two nights ago, uh, ran into a student of mine from five years ago, he was such a great actor in high school, and that was his dream. And guess what? He is now at a really awesome acting college in L.A., living out his dream. So we cannot uh, reduce our art programs in our schools. They're really important as part of child development in elementary schools and beyond. And certainly in our high schools, they can propo- you know provide a platform for a career of some sort, whether it's acting or whether it's doing stage work or, or some of the technical um, – work that goes behind the plays and and the productions and and the music uh so we absolutely have to ensure that we're not cutting those programs and that goes back to making sure that we're getting the teachers because you know all the things you and i've been talking about can't happen unless we've got teachers in the classrooms and we have got to make sure uh-huh. we're not continuing to lose our teachers to neighboring districts and that means also our music our drama teachers our art teachers and, and and those mm-hmm. folks who who were necessary if we're gonna have these programs. That's all right.
0: That's all right. That's all right. So what would you do as a board member to ensure students are being treated fairly when expulsion hearings are, are held?
1: Well, first of all, I mean we have got to cut down on our expulsion hearings, period. Um, and but, – but when I say that, because we have done that over the years, but what teachers will get frustrated by is, you know, as a district we will say we're going to cut down on expulsions, but we don't then provide the support to teachers and schools to deal with that underlying behavior. You can't just say we're not going to expel kids, but we're also not going to address the behavior issues because there are sometimes very real right. behavior issues. And so first of all, mm-hmm. going back to what you and I were talking about earlier, I'd address the root right. causes so that we could eliminate most of the expulsion hearings. But also, you know, when, when students, um, you know, if there is a need for something like that, you know, one of the things I'd make sure that every family knew is that they have a right to a lawyer, and I'd refer them to a legal aid attorney mm-hmm. if they can't afford someone because families deserve to have that. And if they can't afford that's one, right. they also still deserve to have that advice so that you? they know what's going that's on. That's right. I've seen so many times where they didn't have it, and it just breaks my heart when families don't Mm -hmm. have that level of of support and advice only because they can't afford it and nobody has told them about some of the wonderful attorneys at Legal Aid.
0: There we go. That's it right there. You have to inform people. And and so many times that's not what happened because it seems like sometimes these dissonance hearings are set up to, okay, yeah, all right, high five. We've we've made it. We really expelled this child instead of trying to – express to the parents that there is help out here. Let's make sure you're informed before you walk into this hearing with your child because this is going to help determine your child's future and who they become. They don't I think sometimes people don't think about the fact that yes, we do have some some behavioral problems. But we have to think about if we're saying that the children are our future, we have to think about how we are setting these kids up because everything that happens to them in life (laughs) at a young age is going to affect them as an adult. And so we want to set them up for success. We want to set them up for success because they're they're our future. And and sometimes I have to wonder, do we really value them as being our future?
1: Well, that's right. And, And when we get adversarial, with students and families, then then we're failing uh, because that that should not happen. And when we when we label kids as bad kids, we are not setting them up for success, right? I mean, we are we are dehumanizing them, and we are we are failing to do the work that the adults uh, are supposed to be doing. And I think that's one of the ways we could get better.
0: Exactly. Now I'm, I'm asking you this problem because one of the bigger things that I always come back to when it deals with pressure points. Unpacked podcast. I always talk about legislature law. So my question to you now is: How do you plan to monitor the legislative agenda at the state level?
1: Well, that's part of what my nonprofit's been doing, and so we were pretty active in the last legislative session. I testified in front of the legis- in front of two subcommittees. Uh, this past spring about bills that were going to affect students in public schools. And, you know, I'm afraid that this next legislative session is also going to have some proposals that could really hurt or impact uh, public education. And so, you know, I will continue to stay on top of that and, and talk to legislators and try to educate them about how the, how those bills can have really negative real world impacts on schools, but also as a school board member, I think it's my responsibility to make sure I'm getting out in the community and talking to community members about that and educating uh, and educating community members about how a particular bill could impact their school so that they know and they mm-hmm. can contact their right. their legislator because me contacting a legislator it matters, but a whole community contacting their representative that exactly. really matters exactly, and
0: that's one of the things I talk about all the time, so then you know with that. How will you keep in contact with your constituents?
1: Well, I mean, you know, neighborhood meetings are one way to do it and just, you know, making sure you're going to a lot of them and and meeting where people, you know, going where people are already meeting. Um, but the other thing is, you know, I've thought about whether I could just hold a kind of virtual office hours at, you know, every week at this time. I'm on Zoom, and anyone who wants to log in to ask questions or discuss something can. I think that's one way to do Mm -hmm. it, especially because more and more people are comfortable with with Zoom. Um, But also, I mean, I've sent a letter out to 12,000 households with my personal cell phone number on it, and I've answered every call or returned every message that I've gotten. I think that's an important Mm -hmm. part of what this is because there are times when families don't want to discuss things in groups or among other people, uh, whether it Mm -hmm. might be something that's specific to them or maybe – they just don't feel comfortable talking in front of large groups. I want to make sure I'm accessible to those folks, too, because historically uh, their voices have been very silenced. Um, and, you know, and using my website to really disseminate information and and put it in an in, in accurate context for folks, I think, uh, is another way to, to get the word out there. But more than anything, it's mm-hmm. returning people's calls, going to where they're already meeting and, and talking and listening.
0: Great, 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 well, Robert, we're have to wrap up at this point, but if I want to find out what is it that you want to leave the listeners with, because, as we know, this is a special election, and it's october twenty sixth folks and we we have to get out here and vote um we need to make an informed decision, and we need to make the best decisions for our children for our future and you know, you can't do it if you don't do your homework about the people that you're voting in. And so, as I say all the time, and we we really, in order to see change, we have to change the way that we are viewing things and doing it. So at this point in time, I want to give you an opportunity to give the listeners whatever you want to leave them with and letting them know how to get in contact with you. Um so You
1: should time, Robert? Well, so like you said, the, the elections october twenty sixth people can already go down to twenty twenty Hampton Street and vote absentee in person. Um, and you know what I've been saying is we've got the, the the candidates for mayor and the candidates for city council. I mean these these folks are smart folks with great ideas, and I've told all of them that I've met with, none of their ideas are going to happen if we don't strengthen and support our public schools in all of our communities. And so I think this election on October 26th is the foundation for a strong city of Columbia and a strong Richland County. And I will tell you, there's not a single board member that's ever taught in the classroom. And I think that my experience teaching for seven years in Richland 1 is badly needed. We need that perspective Mm -hmm. on the board as we're making decisions that affect teachers and students every single day. And so, obviously, mm-hmm. I'd ask people for their support. But if you still have questions, please, my cell phone number is 803-351-0436. And my website is uh, robert Lamanak, That's com. It also has my email and my cell phone number on it. Go to that reach out and call, ask questions. I'll come meet with anyone anytime. I really do enjoy meeting with folks and listening to their concerns and seeing what I can do to address them. Okay.
0: Well, there you have it. And this is Pressure Points Unpacked Podcast. I'm your host, Tyra Little, and we'll see you next week.
1: you already done.